Welcome to the Finding Gravitas podcast, brought to you by Gravitas Detroit. Looking to become a more authentic leader? Finding Gravitas is the podcast for you. Gravitas is the ultimate leadership quality that draws people in. It's an irresistible force encompassing all the traits of authentic leadership. Join your podcast host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate, rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales, entrepreneur, leadership coach, keynote speaker, one of the top 100 leading women in the automotive industry, as she interviews some of the finest leadership minds in the quest for Gravitas. In this episode, you'll meet one of the most well-known figures in the automotive industry. You'll meet Jason Stein, publisher of Automotive News. Only this time, I'll be interviewing Jason. Many of us are used to being the other side of the microphone with Jason, but now it's time to hear his story. Where did he start his career? How did he come to be in the position that he's in today? We talk about his leadership style, and the changing leadership style in the automotive industry. I want to know, after decades of interviewing the decision makers in this industry, what has he learned? And what does the future leadership model look like? Jason, welcome to the show. Jan, it's a pleasure to be with you. I can't believe that I get to interview Jason Stein, the man who gets to interview everybody else in the industry. The shoe's on the other foot here. I, I'll admit that I was talking to a friend just prior to this taping, and uh, the friend said to me, well, that must be easy for you. You don't have to worry about being on the other side of it now. And I said, actually, it's going to be really hard because it's not something that I typically do. I love it. See, that's my job. I like to help people re realize their full potential, get you outside of your comfort zone. And you are stretching it. me today. Yes, you are <laughs> stretching me. <laughs> Great. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Today, we're going to talk about you, Jason Stein. I want to understand more about you. Where were you born? What's your story? But how does your leadership style evolve? And then we'll talk more about the industry. But first and foremost, Jason Stein, who are you? What is your story? <laughs> well, um, I would say first and foremost, thank you for having me on this program, Jan. And, and, and it's a real opportunity. Uh, we've had the chance to share the stage together and now we get to share a microphone together. Um, I'm not sure that my story is nearly as interesting as those who I interview, but um, I'm, I'm honored. And I'll, I'll just start with the fact that most probably wouldn't know, and likely because my accent doesn't give it away because of years spent out of the country, but I am from Canada, born in Canada, educated in Canada, and have never worked a day of my life in Canada outside of a coffee shop or a gas station. My career has had numerous twists and turns, but it all started in a 10,000-person town on the edge of Grand Lake in Northwest Ohio, in Salina, Ohio, and not far from where Neil Armstrong actually is from, which is Wapakoneta, just uh, north of Dayton. You know, I was a sports writer, and I went there as a political science student who didn't really know if I was going to end up in Ottawa working on Parliament Hill as a, either a lobbyist or some member of the government, but I ended up covering the Ohio State Buckeyes and Salina Bulldog football in a town rabid for high school sports and Ohio sports in general. And all of a sudden, a bit of a fish out of water 
in a very beautiful area. And so that's that's kind of where it all started. And now you say, well, how in the world are you sitting here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so come on, tell us the story. After a quick stint there, I was hired by a newspaper in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette, a morning newspaper. The, actually, the town still has two newspapers, amazingly, and was uh, charged with being the Sunday sports editor. I laid out the pages throughout the week, the Sunday paper, in a joint operating agreement with the afternoon paper. Our, our morning edition was the Sunday paper. And so um, it was actually one of the one of the longest joint operating agreements in the United States. So Sunday was a big deal. Sunday was a very, was full of classifieds and car ads and things of that nature. And I was the person who had to put the paper together. So again, a bit of a fish out of water because I had never done layout really before. I was now managing a small staff in my early 20s. Here I was in the middle of Northeast Ohio, in the middle of the country, in the heartland, if you will. And uh, it was an enormously great experience. I became a sports writer, ultimately, again there. And then I started a car column. And this is how I ended up talking to you, ultimately. I uh, went to my editor at the time, the newspaper's editor, and I said, uh, you know, you don't have a car columnist, and I really like cars. Why don't we put it on the Sunday business section? And he said to me, well, okay, uh, two things. Um, one, you have to keep doing what you're doing. This is in addition to the job that you have. And two, uh, I'd like to see a car review before we commit to this. So he said, why don't you go review your car? So I uh, reviewed my 1996 Pontiac Sunfire, and I gave him the story, and he said, okay, we'll do this. You know what you're doing. So I took on the roles and responsibilities of covering the biggest beats at the paper, ultimately, the Indianapolis Colts, the Indiana Hoosiers basketball team, Notre Dame football, Indiana Pacers, and I wrote my car column. So I would get test cars that I would take from, you know, the manufacturers would send them in droves. I didn't even know such a thing existed. I all of a sudden had three test cars in my driveway. Neighbors thought that I was a drug dealer for sure. And I was driving these test cars, these really fancy new cars from uh, South Bend, Indiana to Bloomington, Indiana to Indianapolis and exchanging them every three days. And when there was a job opening at Automotive News for a marketing reporter, I applied for it. And what they liked was the uh, ingenuity, the perseverance, the willingness to do multiple jobs at once. And so I started uh, in Automotive News uh, 2003 as uh, the lowest rung on the on the totem pole, I was the marketing reporter who was uh, writing all about the marketing that car companies were doing. Wow, amazing. So then what happened? I'm not, you're not going to let <laughs> you get away right. with a short story, you know. <laughs> you're going to have to go all the way. I want to know everything. I was a marketing reporter. Uh, I was uh, hired by uh, Ed Lapham, the former executive editor, who was recently inducted in the Michigan Journalism Hall of Fame as well as Dave Versicle, who is now our lead editor at Automotive News. Those two saw something, they believed in something. And so I had a role there and I wrote about all kinds of interesting, fun things, marketing programs, Celine Dion's fizzle at Chrysler, the fact that Outcast was using a Cadillac Escalade in its ads and all these really, I was a fun job. Marketing's a fun job. I mean, it's a great, they're a great set of stories. And uh, about six months after joining the paper, uh, I was asked by former editor Dave Sedgwick to take the General Motors job. Uh, that was a big leap. I mean, I went from marketing to covering GM, which at the time was, I think, still 25 to 27% market share, and just kind of cresting over the hill on its way toward some pretty unfortunate things that would happen at the end of the decade, obviously. But we were writing about some of the, you know, we were at the forefront of that. I did that for about a year or so. And then um, Keith Crane asked me if I wanted to go to Europe in order to uh, be our uh, in additional sets of set of eyes and ears on the ground in Munich, working for Automotive News Europe. 
as a reporter. So I did that and I went right from General Motors to covering Volkswagen as it was going through a number of its issues, early issues and the, its um, the interactions with the Porsche family, Piac family, and covered that for about a year or so as a reporter. Then my world changed and it's never really been the same since. So I was just kind of a, a guy writing stories. Peter Brown and Keith Crane asked me if I would become the publisher of the publication. So I went from the reporter to the publisher pretty much overnight. And that was a very fascinating journey, one that taught me a lot, formed some incredible relationships with our staff, still have those. You know, the Canadian kid now running the publication. And that was fascinating in its own right, because now I had to learn about sales and marketing and circulation, audience, the, the website development none of which I had done the day before they asked me to do that. Uh, the benefits of a family-run company, you know, you, you have the opportunity to really make some unique decisions, is what I would say. And Keith and Peter Brown, my uh, predecessor, were both incredibly instrumental in my growth and development and gave me the opportunity to do things I could never have imagined. My stint in Europe lasted a total of four years. And in 09, just over 10 years ago now, they asked me to come back to Automotive News as the editor of the publication, which you know, there had only been four or five in its 90, 90 plus year history. And I accepted that after a wonderful expat assignment. Got a chance to really broaden my own skills, meet a ton of people who ultimately would go to North America or back and forth. I mean, the connections were, were enormously great. And ran the publication until 2013 when Peter retired. Moved up to associate publisher for a while, but was always the editor. And then became publisher and editor in around about 2013 and have been in that role ever since, have just focused on being the publisher uh, for the last five years, six years. Yeah, that's the journey. I mean, Salina, small town, can't find it on a Rand McNally atlas. I actually had to go to the city library and take out a Rand McNally atlas to figure out where I was going when I went to Ohio uh, as a 23-year-old, 22-year-old, and my, how the world has changed. Yes, it has indeed. Well, the automotive news is the publication in the industry. And I often think fondly of the days early on in my career when I would look at the uh, leading women publication the first time that was done and think, oh my gosh, you know, I can't imagine being there someday. And then I was, right? And then, as you said, we were on the stage together at the event in Dearborn and it's been yep. such an important part of my career. I, I feel a very fond attachment to it. It's a family-run business, and the automotive industry is tight. You know, it, it, it's got that sort of personal interconnectedness to it, right? It's a small community. That's where I, quickly what I learned in Europe is that um, Automotive News is the host for the family dinner, and we bring everybody together. We've done that in so many ways over the years, whether it's through our publications, our videos, our podcasts now, our print product, obviously, or the in-person events where we have formed the glue that allows the community to come together, stay together. It is enormously tight-knit. It's very small. I've seen my share of, of folks come and go in various roles, but they ultimately stay in the industry. I've seen outsiders come into the industry and, you know, organ rejection. Uh, they're, they're no longer part of the industry. I think we all know those folks. You know, it starts with the Crane family, and it is a family. It's a wonderful family. It treats its employees extremely well. We are very lucky to be part of this Crane family that is uh, operating under the principle, has always operated, that the reader comes first. And they care about their employees and they care about the industry. They care about the community. Keith always said the industry's best friend and its biggest critic. And I think we, we operate that way. 
very few places these days would allow for something as adventurous as an expat journey, but also clearly being able to recognize that they wanted to move me in a certain direction and I was a willing participant. I still am. (laughs) I think that taking an expat assignment is critical to leadership development. When you're in a global organization, and we see a lot of this in the industry, you have to have experience in another country. From a leadership perspective, Jason, what did you learn either from your own personal leadership perspective or by talking to leaders in Europe, in the automotive industry? Share with us some of the things that you learned that are perhaps different about leading automotive in uh, Europe as opposed to the U.S. Yeah, Jan, it's a great question, you know, because I, I think it's the most under um, underplayed or underemphasized part of that is the cultural assimilation. And I think what you learn through the experience is that you have to have tolerance for different cultures. We sort of operate in, and every country does this, I believe, you operate in your own native silo, your own way of conducting business or dealing with people. And what it taught me is patience and perseverance and an acceptance of different cultures. I had already gone through an expat experience, which is underplayed, but had moved from Canada to the United States, which may all seem like it's similar in terms of our methods of doing business or, you know, we all kind of look and sound the same, but it's very, it's a very different cultural experience. And that actually, uh, we, we can talk a little later about my Autumn of News Canada uh, side of this as well, which is, which was eye-opening. I think my experience in Germany and dealing with world leaders or leaders in different parts of the world who were global automotive leaders but also trying to fit into that culture was equally, I learned just as much from that experience as I did from trying to understand different businesses around the world. So it was a personal journey as well as a professional journey. And I I think that what's underrepresented is that uh, appreciation of other cultures that you then take with you back to a North American experience. And that's what an expat journey does. Somebody once said to me, once you have an expat experience, it lives some some portion of it lives with you every day going forward. The, the, it can be a little part. It can be something that's very un, un, unnoticeable to most, but it's true. And I and I think even if I reflect on twelve years later, since my Munich days, there are things that I apply in my business relationships that I learned in Europe that would go relatively unnoticed. It's the conversation you have with someone. It's a difference in in style, listening skills. It's a difference in communicating, and you form a bond with others who have done it too because they understand what it means to be thrown into a country where you don't speak the language. I certainly didn't speak German before I got to Munich. I probably didn't speak German after I left Munich. But it definitely gives you a greater sense of the global community. And then when those folks are deployed to North America, you have a connection with them as well. And there's a beautiful program that we have called the European Rising Stars. And we started naming these rising stars, gosh, more than 10 years ago while I was still there. And these are executives who have moved up in their various companies or within the industry. But we all were all tied in back together because we recognize them as a Euro, as a as a rising star when they were in Europe, and then they end up in North America. Now they're on an expat assignment, and you have a bond with them. It's extremely gratifying. I cannot overestimate the power of doing something like that. And I know it's costly from a business perspective. I know that it's disruptive because you're taking people out of their jobs. It probably wasn't easy to have to find another General Motors reporter when I was only, you know, in it for a year. I'm not saying that it was my skill, but it's but it's disruptive. And and they did it. 
I, I owe everything to that experience. Yeah, and I think you're right. It sharpens your communication skills. And as a leader, you have to bring clarity to a whole team of people. And if you're trying to do that, dealing with multiple different cultures, in order to be clear, you have to listen at a much deeper level to see if people are understanding because you can't just assume that just because you said something that they took away the same meaning and had the same understanding because a different culture, different value system, different way of doing business. They didn't. They thought about it a different way. And even dealing with, I spent a lot of time in Japan and in China through that expat experience and even dealing with those cultures, I, I, I wouldn't have had the same level of understanding as I do today. So I think that's important. One other thing that happened to me too is that my leapfrogging of various individuals within the organization was completely baptism by fire. I mean, not only was I in a new culture and a new environment, but now I was tasked with leading these folks and working side by side when organizationally that doesn't typically happen, that someone will go from reporting to four or five people to those four or five people reporting to you. And it really took a lot of understanding and patience and communication I think probably a thoughtfulness that I developed over over time. Jason, you've interviewed just about everybody in the industry, I think. <laughs> and I've often said that I've learned more about leadership from interviewing great leaders since I've had the podcast, which is just over a year now, than I did in over 30 years in the corporate world in automotive. So I have to believe that you've learned a thing or two because you've been doing it a lot longer than I have. So would you share with us, please, some of the leadership traits that you've seen and experienced through your interviews during your time in Automotive News? Who are those leaders? Let's talk a little bit about the leadership traits that really resonated with you. And you thought, yes, I'd really like the way this person does that. Yeah, I, I can think of um, a few really key examples. It is a clarity of focus uh, that a Roger Penske has, knowing exactly uh, not only who he is in his business, but who he's not, that I've borrowed a great deal from. Roger is laser focused on his operations and on the clarity of the mission that Penske has. I can think of uh, Mark Fields, who, you know, the former Ford CEO, and Mark and I are careers kind of geographically mirrored each other in that we were overseas kind of around the same time. And he was running North America when I was named the editor of Automotive News. And we spent a, a good amount of time together. He's still a, a dear friend of mine. Mark and his ability to really clearly communicate to his team what he wanted out of them and to uh, strategically decide that they were going to go in a certain direction. And then it was that constant level of communication to make sure that everybody understood where the pathway was and drilling down into some of those details as well. Mark also has an empathy, which I really admire in a leader. Uh, he, he has the ability to understand, certainly in my dealings with him, um, and obviously I didn't work for him, but I could see that the empathy that Mark shared for his employees was, was real. I had the chance last summer to spend almost 90 minutes interviewing Elon Musk, which was the second time in five years that I had interviewed him. And I'm proud to say that we're, we're one of the few who he has chosen to talk to, which is wonderful. It's a wonderful compliment to the brand. And that's a completely different approach. There's a, a mind there that is unlike any other and a fascination for imagining the possible and brainstorming what could be really an unconventional approach, I would say. 
being willing to say, as he said to me when I asked the question about, will he go into other products? And his response was, well, sure, you know, we'll probably do a minivan because no one's really built a great minivan so far. And it's that irreverence, which I sort of somewhat admire. And and it's the creativity and it's the persistence and drive that individuals have who I have interviewed. In the case of Elon, it's really unlike any other. I would say, Jan, every individual who I've had the chance to, to interview, especially on the podcast over the course of the last year, they all come with a laser focus. They all know exactly what they want, and they are prepared to rally their teams around that mission. They're clear, clear is kind, as they say, and they're clear about what they want, and they are all hugely dedicated to the industry that they're in. So communication, dedication, enormous intelligence. I think uh, to, to run a car company or to be in a leadership position in this industry is very challenging. And you have some of the brightest, most amazing individuals. A good friend of mine in the retail space, Mike Marooney, is a giant. He is considered one of the retail legends. It was a former chief operating officer at AutoNation and now is out on his own. Mike has, I think, a, a dedication to perfection an understanding of who his employees are and a willingness to find the best talent that exists, really differentiating yourself as a leader by wanting to stand apart from your competition and by hiring the best talent around you. Those would be some, some names that come to mind. There are many names. Those are, those are some, some of the few. I would agree with you. That's a common trait, this laser focus, right? This being very clear on who they are and where they're going. The big question is how. The traditional auto companies that we have grown up with and live with today are going to have a difficult time recruiting young talent, recruiting Gen Z. Forget millennials. Millennials are already in the workplace. But Gen Z is a whole different ballgame. And when you talk to a leader in uh, EV space, more of a, a startup Tesla type canoe, a velocity, somebody in that more of a California, Silicon Valley culture. Yes, they're laser focused. Yes, they have that in common with traditional auto, but it's the how they do it. It's the how they galvanize the team around the vision. Traditional auto tends to be more command and control. I would say Silicon Valley type culture is more inclusive, more collaborative, less of we have to fit a corporate mold and wear a corporate mask. How do you see the traditional auto companies evolving? Because my fear is if we don't evolve faster than we're going right now, we're not going to be able to get the talent into the industry. What are your thoughts on that? I think you're 100% correct, Jan. I think talent acquisition for this industry, is it certainly has been talked about, I think, for the better part of the last decade, and it's been accelerated in the last few years. Traditional auto companies uh, and their suppliers and even retailers are doing their best to separate themselves from the clutches of their own tradition and and trying to get out of their own way to some extent. They're trying to reinvent their own processes and how they handle employee issues. But what I still see, to be quite honest, primarily out of the Detroit companies, is you still have fairly bureaucratic, fairly traditional, very process-oriented approaches because it's just frankly who they are. The influx of Silicon Valley individuals into those companies has not gone well. We've seen it over the course of time. 
And it's almost like what I said earlier, it's almost uh, organ rejection to some extent because you're not from Detroit, because you are not from a traditional automaker. You don't know how we do it here. That's not how we do it. Now, there have been numerous attempts. There are ones that are ongoing with Detroit car companies setting up shop in California and trying to fit in. But the most classic example, and just in terms of employee engagement, and this would lead to your question on attraction, is that the mindset that exists that I've seen out of the tech sector and startup space, it's very inclusive. It's very sharing. It's very much, uh, I'm working on a project today, and I'm going to share that with you at a cocktail party when we used to do those things. I might be on a different project next week and the different project might be with your company and I might not even be with the company for very long because my loyalty level is relatively low. But you and I both know that the Detroit companies or the traditional auto sector, if we can say that, has a different philosophy. It's, a, it's all around, you know, these are my secrets and my intellectual property and you're on board with me or you're not or you're my crosstown competitor. My goodness, the amount of time and effort that has gone into the Ford versus GM rivalry is numerous and, and I would think wasteful to some extent because, by the way, those aren't the two largest auto companies in the world anymore. And so there needs to be a different approach to trying to attract talent. And, it's, and it is less bureaucratic and it is more inclusive and more Silicon Valley. But the bottom line is that that requires a whole different mindset because even in Silicon Valley, things that Detroit companies would hold dear performance reviews, succession plans, all the sort of corporate basics that the Fortune 500 would insist on, Silicon Valley and tech startups are not really interested in. I mean, they're lucky if they have an HR department. Everybody kind of does their own thing and, they, and it all comes together. And there's usually a, a visionary at the top of those companies who is very strong, who's leading those efforts. You see it now. You see it in the fact that not only Elon Musk and RJ Scaringe at Arrivian this is his, it's his company, it's his vision, and they have very unconventional approach to trying to make vehicles. And, and you see it with a, numerous other startups too. And you see, you know, at, at Carvana, it's Ernie Garcia Jr. and Ernie Garcia Sr. Making sure that you completed your performance review in time, that's not really their concern. And so I think to attract young, key talent, the traditional automakers are going to have to think of things in a different way, but not only think of them, but act on them. And that's going to require changing the bureaucracy that's existed for a very long time. Yes. And it starts at the top and it starts with the leadership team, whether it's at an OEM level or a tier level, a tier one or tier two level. It's how they behave will determine whether or not we will evolve the way that we need to evolve. I believe that a lot of this comes back to trust. When you're so hyper-focused on what the competition is doing, you just said it, right? You look at Rivian, you look at Tesla. They are focused on where they're going. They really are not that concerned about the competition. Yes, you should be sort of aware of it. The belief that you have in yourself and your company should be so strong. It's just driving you into one direction. And that's where you focus. And then people feel that, right? It's palpable. And then people want to be on board with something like that. They don't want to be on board with a company that has a vision statement that says, oh, well, we're going to be the world-class manufacturer of this shiny metal widget. And we're going to sell 50 million of them. That's not very inspiring. But again, that fits the corporate mold. So we've got to get leaders in auto outside of the traditional corporate mold so that they can be more inclusive, they can be more collaborative, and they can form this foundation of trust. And, you know, I, I was in it for over 30 years, right? There's this fear. Yep. 
of if I do this or don't do this, they might not like me, worse, they might fire me, right? So I'm going to do what I see leaders above me doing. I'm going to emulate that behavior because that's the path to success. So now I'm following the corporate mold. So it just repeats and repeats and repeats. We've got to get beyond this idea of trust and put this foundation of trust in place. And the other thing that is definitely related to that, which is innovation. You've got to eradicate fear from these companies if you really want innovation. Innovation is by definition, you try and you fail and you try and you fail until you get one idea out of maybe 99 or 10,000. But if you don't have trust in your culture and you have a lot of fear, nobody is going to want to put that idea forward because they're afraid to get their head taken off. And that's a huge difference that I see with the Silicon Valley culture as compared to traditional auto. I would totally agree. And I think that the traditional auto's view of trying and failing is just an emphasis on the last word, which is failing. You failed at something. There is not enough, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's a fine line because traditional automakers are still churning out product and profits at levels that the startups would love to be a part of. For all of Elon Musk's success and the 500,000 units sold and the mark of profitability, profitability not built on selling vehicles at a clip like an F-150 is. And so there, there's a level of traditional automaking that still very much works. Let's, let's be clear. And, yes. And from, from a shareholder standpoint as well, we can't completely blow up the model, but there does need to be a greater emphasis on the attempts that are made to innovate. Yeah. Just as much as staying the course. Yeah, you're right. And this idea of failing, you know, it's an F word that- It is. I, I <laughs> mean, you just don't want to, you just don't want to be anywhere near it. It feels bad. If you fail, you're made to look incompetent. There's a problem with this person. We have to get rid of this person. But what if that person was merely trying something new and different and failed, and we looked at it as something that we've learned? We've learned something about our process, about our people, about the business, about the product. Yeah, it becomes an accomplishment, right? It's, yes. It's, it's celebrated rather than um, admonished. Yes, yes. If we could get that, <laughs> that part right, that would yeah. be tremendous. But I do hear you loud and clear, though. You know, the traditional auto, we're making money. We're putting out great product and we're making money. But I think sometimes when you do that, you get somewhat complacent because there's this, why do I need to change then? If everything's going so well, why do I need to change? But the world is changing. And again, I go back to Gen Z. You know, I've got an 18-year-old at home with me studying at Wayne State. She would not touch the automotive industry with a 10-foot pole. Because she's seen me <laughs> on conference calls all the time and, <laughs> and she's been in the, you know, maybe in the, the baby seat in the back of the car, the toddler seat, listening to some of these conference calls over the years. And this idea of going into an office, which of course is now challenged, we won't have so much of that, we'll have more flexibility in the future. But that idea of work to her is, oh no. And again, Gen Z, I think, is more in tune with the gig economy that we see coming at us fast and furious, challenging the traditional employer-employee model. And that's another thing that we're going to have to get on board with. You know, companies like Mercer, PwC, all talking about the gig economy. I'm a gig worker. You're not going to hire me as an employee, but you're going to get a little piece of me 
for this company and that company. You're going to pay me for the skill set for a determined period of time. That's the gig economy, and it's coming hard and fast, which will totally blow away the traditional employer-employee model. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. We need to rethink all of it. We, we really do. And the auto industry, I mean, we, we see all the proclamations of moving to an EV type of um, business model. Okay, we're, we're replacing the powertrain to some extent, but that doesn't mean that all of a sudden traditional automaking is going to be revolutionized. There's a lot of room to go, I think. Let's talk about authentic leadership. Uh, you know, that's my, my platform. It's what I talk about every single day of my life. Gravitas is the hallmark of authentic leadership. And it's one of those words that has a very different meaning to different people. Some people haven't heard that word in a while or, yeah, you know, I'm not sure what it means. I get to redefine it because it's the name of my business. So it is what I say it is. Sure. And I say it's the hallmark of authentic leadership. So given that as the definition, Jason, what is gravitas in leadership to you? I think it has a lot to do with, uh, with the word you just mentioned earlier, which is authenticity. I believe that if you're authentic in the mission that you're on, if you are clear in the goals that you want to accomplish, that everyone is going to be rallied around, and if you articulate that repeatedly with a willingness to allow inputs from team members and you surround yourself with those strong team members and you know that you are not the story, you are not the... You are not the reason for being, but that the team is the reason for being. I, I, think, I think that that form of leadership, that's, that's the gravitas that you can have, which is setting that path, drawing the map for everybody and saying, here's where we want to go. It's that simple. It's, it sound, I mean, I was, I was reading Anthony Robbins' books when I was you know, a teenager, and Tony Robbins was always, you know, in, in my mind, and, and Dennis Watley, too, who's a little less known. They were very clear on the, on the articulation of goals, which any great leader should do, is to outline those goals, articulate them effectively. And by that, I mean uh, affirmative, constant communication and surrounding yourself with great team members. Every great leader has just supremely wonderful people working underneath her or him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great, great definition. Let's go back to your early days in leadership, your first leadership position. Two questions for you, and that is, what did you learn? Did you make some missteps? Did you, I'm going to use the F word, did you fail at anything? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to move that to what advice would you give to your 20-something self on a broader basis? But let's start off with, what did you learn as a leader at such a young age? That I needed to be patient and I needed to take the time to build consensus uh, in an area and to, and to get the proper inputs and to surround myself with uh, the most informed decision makers that I possibly could really lean on the team in order to make that happen. There, there is the false assumption that it is all on you and that you have to do this and that you're, you're the one lifting the boulder repeatedly every day, but you actually have many hands to help you lift that. And so I think I, I learned very quickly that by empowering those around you, the entire project, the entire operation would get easier. Failures? Sure. Yeah, probably tried to do too much of it myself early on. I think a big failure in terms of leadership, and maybe at the time I was trying to rally the support of those around me whom I, I was now in charge of them. I was mistaken. I thought I needed friends as opposed to teammates. 
And I think there's a big difference there. And I think uh, it obviously depends on your personality style. I like working with everyone who I work with. I probably consider them friends as much as colleagues, but there is a, there, there, there is a firm line between those two things. And sometimes you have to make some tough decisions that involve colleagues who are probably not your friends per se. And I think I believed early on that if everybody was, if I was getting along with everyone, that we were then on the right path. And the bottom line is that we probably a couple times weren't on the right path and you have to make hard decisions. And that sometimes fractures relationships. Probably best to not go into business with your friends. You can become friends afterwards. You know, I always said is a good way to, to harm a friendship is by hiring somebody. And some of my lifelong friends have been friends who I've gone on the journey with only after we became colleagues. That was probably the biggest failure that I, that I, that I can think of was sort of overplaying, overplaying the role of uh, friendship in a business relationship. It's business. That's all part of the leadership journey, everything that you just talked about. And there are many people out there right now and possibly listening to the podcast that are in that situation. And I see it every day with clients, this fear of wanting to let go because yeah. you're ultimately responsible. So again, it comes back to trust, learning to trust somebody else to do it. And will they do it the same way that you would do it? No, absolutely not. They're different people, different human beings. But learning to trust and being there to support people early on as they take on some responsibility, that's the tough part, right? Because we're all afraid, oh, it's going to come back on me. But we have to trust if we are going to empower people and build a collaborative team. And I learned quite early too, and I, this developed for me, that empowerment piece. I've worked with bosses in the past who had much more of a firm hand and perhaps maybe didn't trust their own teammates. That doesn't really go well. You can't fix every problem yourself. You may not even be the smartest person in a small room, <laughs> but you know, surrounding yourself with people who are will only make the team better. One of the things I've loved about the remote working is that those people who didn't trust their employees or their team members and fought the work from home had to deal with it. They had to get Isn't over that it, interesting, right? Right. Yeah, they, they really did. <laughs> I love that. And guess what? Life went on. And, and just because you didn't see someone doesn't mean that they weren't being efficient. It's a, it's a exactly. wonderful, Jan, it's a wonderful lesson from the pandemic, which is that inherent sense of trust now because, I mean, it's a very old notion of uh, not seeing you, you're not working. You, you, you must be seen. You must be in front of me. Yeah, no. And I also think the pandemic has brought a level of humanity to the table that mm -hmm. we've never seen before. If you've been this buttoned up corporate person all your life and now you're on a Zoom call and there's a kid screaming behind you or the dogs running, you know, in or something, it's, you're much more human, you're much more relatable. And yes, you're much more authentic as a leader. Yeah. I mean, we've done extraordinary work during the pandemic. Our our entire team that who used to sit in a newsroom or in um, at their desk on the sales side, you know, the commercial side of the operation, they used to sit there every day and they had to transition overnight like the rest of the world to the situation. And the bottom line is that we've been more innovative, more effective. We've communicated more than ever. And it's forced us to look at the world differently and to, I think, create the creativity that's come out of this has just been fabulous. And we still maintain and do what we were doing before. We just do it in a better way, in a more efficient way. And I think in a, you know, amazingly, and we're just as collaborative now as we were before. 
I'm going to take this more to a personal level now. Let's move away from leadership because you can't lead others until you know how to lead yourself. So let's talk about how Jason Stein leads himself. How do you start your day, Jason? (laughs) Well, hopefully in the gym. I'm about a four to five day guy in the gym. That's something I've only really done in the last few years. As I think, you know, you get older, you realize you can't kind of do what you used to. Golden rule that somebody once told me is, you know, have financial health and have physical health because if you've got both of those going for you, then you're not going to have much to worry about in the future because you'll be able, you'll be mobile and you'll be able to go wherever you want. From a, a personal standpoint, the ability to get in the gym every day is an important one. You know, I've, I've been actually going to the office since last March. The office is close to where I live and I find that that kind of routine was important for me. And we haven't had that many people actually coming into the office it's a safe environment. We have all the forms to check out and you know, make sure everybody's safe. But going to my office every day was important. So I've, I've tried to keep that schedule just to, for my, you know, my own sort of mental well-being. Yeah, that's important. Personal accountability, staying focused. I've been talking a lot lately about choosing traction over distraction. And the pandemic has certainly impacted that. I know for me personally, it was very hard to stay focused. Personal tips that you can share to help you get traction in your day and avoid distraction? I, I think I, I just like to keep a, a, a schedule that is um, uh, somewhat consistent, but also knowing that it's probably not the best idea to be answering emails at midnight. My predecessor, Peter Brown, ta- always talked about sort of logging off at a certain, at a certain reasonable time to so let your brain rest a little bit. I like to subscribe to that theory as, as much as I possibly can. I think it's important to read outside of just the space that you're currently uh, absorbed by and with. It's reading outside the automotive world. And I'm a big music guy. In another life, I, I would have loved to have hosted a podcast that was all about music every day. And I probably could fill eight hours of that every day, just, just my fascination with the music industry. So I've got friends who are musicians, friends who are in bands, pretty successful ones. And so I like to stay connected to them, just keep that side of me, um, you know, that creative side kind of going. And I'll tell you that doing the podcast over the course of the last year has been extremely fulfilling in that I get a chance to communicate and connect with so many folks in our world who I'm no longer seeing, who I haven't seen in the last 12 months. And that's not only important for our audience, obviously, but it's important for me. I mean, it's a touch point, as you well know. I think that that side of it, keeping those relationships going, I'm a big relationship guy. I check in with, got a handful of people who I am in touch with every week, every week. Those relationships are, are really key. And I think that kind of keeps you going as well. Yeah. And you're so right. You know, we're in this, our beloved automotive industry, but it's so important to understand what's going on in other industry silos. And that's one of the reasons why I bring guests on senior level leaders from other industries onto my podcast so that they can share what they're doing to lead their company successfully, you know, in the hope that the automotive leaders will, will glean something from that, something, you know, not everything. There's no one industry or one leader that's got it all nailed. The idea is that the mission of my podcast is for everybody to share their authentic leadership journey and stories and what they do to lead in a more authentic way so that a listener will just get a little something out of each one that resonates with them, that they can take on board, that will help them on their leadership journey. So one last question for you. Looking back, what would you say to 20-something Jason Stein today in today's environment? (laughs) A piece of Uh, advice, perhaps. (laughs) 
I would say don't be afraid to take up the challenge so often that cha- that opportunities are presented to 20-somethings and they bristle or, the, or they have every reason in the world to not pursue a dangerous, scary, seemingly, uh, you know, un- uncharted waters, right? I would say to myself, do again what I did. That was uh, heading to another country in my late 20s, taking on roles that I thought were much larger than than I could have ever possibly been capable of doing. I'm just fortunate to have a great team who has helped me along the way. Speaking of great relationships, I've formed great relationships with those folks. And when Keith asked me to take on a more senior role, uh, all of a sudden now I, I was working with people who were much older than I was, who were more capable than I was, but we formed a great relationship and we made it work. And ultimately, if they ended up leaving or some are still there, we have great relationships because we respect each other and I have leaned on their talent. And I'm the first person to say, I can't do something and you can, and you know, let's do this together. And then learning from that. To my 20-year-old self, I would say, keep challenging yourself. If there's something you think you cannot do, there's probably somebody there who can help you. Yeah, yeah. Keep challenging. There it is. Well, you are where you are today, partly because you are indeed an authentic leader and you have built a great team around you. And thank you for sharing your story and your journey with us today. Jan, thank you for having me. I'm honored, I'm thankful, and I'm happy to help in any way. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you found something of value that will help you on your quest for your gravitas, then please share with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. Visit us at gravitasdetroit.com to find out more.